All right, folks. Uh, we we had uh, it's been see it's been like a month since uh, we last had um, this class, and we've been talking about we've been getting into the last few times we've been getting into uh, Exodus and kind of painting with broad strokes. Um, I, I I don't I always have a hard time remembering exactly what we talked about the time before, but. I know that we 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 I spent a couple times just looking at uh, two or three times maybe looking at the uh, some of the general themes overall themes of Exodus kind of getting the bird's eye view and then uh, with the, with the aim of um, getting in a little bit closer now ne- not really going verse by verse as much as we did we didn't do it exactly verse by verse in in uh, in Genesis but we did so m- more so than I think we're going to do in Exodus. Um, I'm still kind of in this section here, uh, Exodus chapter three and four. There's just a, there's a bunch in these two verses. The first two chapters I didn't have a whole lot to say about them. More uh, just kind of setting the stage for the things that happen later. Um, there, there may be a whole lot more than I'm sure there is a whole lot more than what I said and shared, um, but but not nothing that that uh, has really come into my view yet. But but in chapters three and four, um, there's uh there's just a, a terrific well when god meets moses that's kind of what we're talking about what, what that's that's what i talked about last time too god you know moses has uh left egypt gone to live with jethro and 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 then he has this burning bush experience and at this burning bush experience god um says these these statements that i think uh, again, I think I overlooked them or, or just read over them for for years without um, without really seeing anything here. And 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 at one point along the way, uh, some of these statements started to really uh, stand out in my heart. One of them being uh, what we talked about last time. I think I think most of the time was we talked about the fact that God has a desire and. Uh, he has a purpose, and he begins to. Um, he, he showed us that purpose in a bunch of types and shadows, uh, in, in the book of Genesis, and I guess I guess as he started to talk to Abraham about the land and about the increase of the seed, you see some of it there. This is God kind of coming at it from a slightly different angle. Same exact purpose. Obviously, he hasn't changed. Never changes his purpose, but he begins to talk about. He begins to take talk about this particular thing that he wants, and, and in a sense, he already has it, and yet, because it's Christ, and yet he he wants it to be glorified. That's what he wants. So there's always this there's kind of this tension between this finished work and this eternal desire of God, and 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 I don't think there's any tension in God's heart about that, but I think I've bumped into people, and I've talked about it, and in my own mind, I've wrestled with it a time or two. Is God satisfied with Christ, or does God want something beyond that? And I think I think the answer to that is yes and yes. Um, he is. Christ is the life and the person and the nature and the light and the love and the righteousness and all that satisfies God's heart. And yet there is a desire in God's heart to glorify the one, that is to say, cause him to be 
seen, known, apprehended, enjoyed, uh, expanded, so to speak, within the soul of the believer in an even greater way. So Christ and his work on the cross perfectly satisfied the righteousness of God, the judgment of God, brought to God the the perfect uh, finished sacrifice, and yet there's this thing that goes beyond that, not not more work to be done, but the glorification, increase, magnification, uh, filling of the house uh, that he bought with his own blood, the filling of the house uh, unto the the full measure of the stature of of, of Christ. So um, that's I, and it's hard to describe that because sometimes I mean it, it's Christ, it's something he already has, and yet it's Christ in a people made larger, or the boundaries of Christ expanding. Or, or sometimes I say the boundaries of Israel, the boundaries of his government expanding in the human soul. Um, it's a it's a particular. I'm just reading some of the things I wrote down here. It's Christ's government and rule in a corporate vessel, expanding, growing. The same nature, the same life that was in the seed, but now in a greater body, a body of greater glory, which doesn't change the nature or the substance of the life, but it gives it a greater expression, a greater glory. And there's a whole lot of talk about this in the in the New Testament too. Paul gets into it, especially in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, how there's different kinds of bodies and each have their own glory. Um, and, and, and he's talking about the resurrection of the dead. We'll get into that in a little bit. But... Um, but I bring it up now because God just makes this very simple statement to Moses that over, over the years has become just so full of meaning to my heart. He says, go tell Pharaoh that Israel is my son. To let my son go a three-day journey out of Egypt into the wilderness that they may offer up pleasing uh, sacrifices or uh, sacrifices that are pleasing in my sight. That's what, for, for me, this this picture of a or this desire of God to have a corporate people being filled with Christ, being governed by Christ, and then offering up to God the fragrance and presence and nature and uh, aroma of Christ that is pleasing to him. That's what Israel is all about. That's what this whole thing is about. It's about taking a people out of one land where worship was impossible because of slavery. Because It was the wrong place, the wrong kind, the wrong uh, uh, king. And bringing them into a totally different relationship where worship, that is to say, the, the, I mean, what is worship? We could get off on a long rabbit trail about this too, but it's not just singing songs. It's what God wanted was this, this corporate people to bear in themselves and, and re- release unto him this sweet swelling, smelling aroma, this, this, uh, this fragrant aroma of his son. And and so that's what the sacrifices and the offerings are all about. They're not just a God that desires bloodshed or, um, I don't know, there's so many weird 
ideas about why God required sacrifices of Israel and, and offerings. Um, and, and, and so many of them are so, they, they make God out to be some kind of like caveman, strange, I don't know. I, I just, if you don't see Christ in these things, then you're, then the imagination of man reigns and rules. And who knows what they're going to write into a book. But, uh, but if you do see Christ and you see that God is doing nothing else in this people except showing them to be this corporate body of Christ that bears his, carries his life and bears his increase in glory. And that's what it's all, that's what it's all about. We'll get into this when we get further on in Exodus and especially into Leviticus. We'll look at some of what these, uh, as far as, as far as I've seen, some of what these sacrifices and offerings represent and feasts and ceremonies and how they all are one view of Christ or another presented to his father and a people relating to the father in that particular view of Christ. That's the main thing. I mean, it's, it's not just a bunch of stuff. It's, it's a people that have that aspect of Christ as their relationship with God. And uh and, and so all that to me ties into this this thing where, where God says to 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 Moses go go tell Pharaoh that there's a three day journey that I'm gonna bring these people out through death, burial, and resurrection. There's a cross experience that's going to bring them into a new place and a new condition where they're going to actually worship um, uh, me in spirit and truth, so to speak. And types and shadows in the Old Covenant, spirit and truth in the New, but still it's the pictures of uh, it's the pictures of Christ versus the actual substance of Christ. That's the difference between the Old and the New Covenant. Pictures, natural pictures and promises and prophecies and shadows in the New Covenant is the actual spiritual substance and reality. So, um, and, 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 and I love it how one time Pharaoh says, how can you, why don't you just worship God here? Just take it, you know, I, I, he didn't actually say it like this, but it's almost like, okay, I'll give you a day off to, to worship God in Egypt. And Moses says, no, that's an abomination. Um, Egypt, Egypt, Considers our sacrifices to our God a total abomination, and I think it, it, it implied there is it, it would be an abomination to to God as well. So, um, so I know I'm hitting this thing hard, but I, I I'm doing it on purpose. I, I want it it to be really big in our hearts that God desires to create this thing, this corporate thing which He calls Israel. Which is a people, which is a harvest, which is a kingdom, but he, he, he wants to make it because he, and, and he has to make it. He has to, he has to create it. He can't just use, um, let me see, how, how do I want to say this? He can't just use what's already there in Egypt. He has to actually create something in newness. He has to actually, he has to destroy one thing and, and, and create it anew. Because the natural world of Adam, which is what's represented by this kingdom of, of, uh, of Pharaoh, this, 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 uh, the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of, of, of Satan that governs the Adamic man, that the world of Adam has become a very different kingdom, a very different corporate body, and a very, very different fragrance unto God. And so he can't just work with the, with the resources that are there. That's the problem. He created human souls for this purpose, but an enemy has, uh, 
has possession of those souls. You see what I'm saying? He, he created man with a, with a purpose and, and yet the, the man has become the body of another seed, the kingdom of another king. The corporate expression and fragrance and, and, and uh, aroma of a completely different smell. And so, in other words, I guess you could say it like this. An enemy has taken the materials that God created to build for himself a house. What are those materials? Well, it's the souls of humanity. And he's, he's, he's infested it with his own kingdom and nature and likeness. So much so that Christ can say to that man, you are of your father the devil and you, by nature you do the desires of him. And, and, and primarily he defines that nature as two things, lies and death. You know, or you could say darkness and death. Whereas the kingdom, you know, everything about knowing Christ has to do with life and light. I think you could really kind of summarize so many things in those two words, life and light. Well, Jesus says your father is a liar and a murderer. He he brings he brings uh, falsehood and he or darkness and he brings death to the table. That's what he's all about. And you're his children, and 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 so the enemy has stolen, has plundered, uh, so to speak, this material. And I'm I'm speaking, you know kind of symbolically here, but the, the material of the human soul that God purposed for the constructing material of his own house. And and so God has to somehow enter into the strong man's camp, into the enemy's realm, and defeat the realm but keep the house. He has to defeat the enemy, but keep the materials in one way or another. And, and, and for, for us, you know, we're, we're the thing, you know, our nature, the nature of man, the nature of sin, the nature of Adam, what we've called our life, it gets crucified in the process of that, and yet the soul is saved. There's something that's saved, it's a soul, but the soul is completely wiped out as to its contents, its nature, it's the life that lives and reigns in it, the seed that we have known, the life that we have known. I've been crucified with Christ. And yet, there's something saved in the in in the process. So, and, and I'm saying all that because that's another. And I didn't really get into this much when I was kind of giving the overviews of Exodus, but that's a huge picture of what's going on here. You have something that God wants groaning under the the oppression of a, of a of an enemy who has taken it, and and God's about to go into this the that. This is what the incarnation is. It's Christ entering into the enemy's kingdom and territory to take out for himself those who will join themselves to him. That's the story of Jacob. Jacob goes into Laban's territory and, and by marriage joins himself to that which will come out with him. And yet the enemy tries to change his wages and deceive him and trick him and keep him from going out the whole, the whole way until he actually makes it out. A three day journey, of course, yet again. And, uh, and then God says, you can't touch him for good or for bad. And then he draws this line. But that's a, that's a view of our salvation, um, that you see again here in the Exodus. Moses goes into this, this, this enemy's camp and a place that, where he was rejected and persecuted to begin with. Um, and he goes into this enemy's territory 
and he's he's going to plunder them. He's going to defeat the strong man. He's going to take out for himself the materials which are the people in 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 actual fulfillment although in the story here it's gold silver and 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 and, and precious remember the story god says on their way out he says ask the people the israel or the egyptians to give you gold silver precious stones and 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 different kinds of linen which are the very same materials that he then a few chapters later takes from the Israelites in these free will offerings and builds the tabernacle. That's not a coincidence that God's plundering Egypt, taking their stuff and building himself a house because that's exactly what he was he does with our souls. He plunders the enemy's camp, takes the things out that he has created for the purpose of building himself a house. And um uh, and, and and that's uh, well, I I just think that that's really that's really uh there's there's lots of other I'm just my mind is spinning with different pictures of of the same thing, but because there's lots of stories that have the same theme from different angles. I just the one that was in my head at that moment was the parable where Jesus talks about you know like the the you can't get a strong man out of a house unless a stronger man comes and binds up the strong man boots him out and 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 takes his place what in the world is he talking about what's the house who's the strong man and who's the stronger man well you're the house you're the dwelling place your soul is that 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 thing that god has created to dwell in what the strong man is is the one is the life that, or the I don't, it's not really right to call it life, but it's the nature or the seed of the enemy that has taken residence up in that house and 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 caused it to be an expression of himself. And uh, and who's the stronger man? Well, it's the one that comes in there and kicks out the strong man, and 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 then resides there. And yet, in another parable, Jesus says, if you kick out the strong man without the, 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 the stronger man actually taking up residence and dwelling in there, then he'll just bring back seven more of his wicked friends and take up residence there again. All of that's talking about your inward experience of Jesus Christ. That's, that's what that's all about. It's about Jesus Christ himself living in you and making you the kingdom of his increase, his government, his glory. So that, that's part of the story of Pharaoh, of Pharaoh and um, and Moses and Aaron and, and the, the whole story here. Out, God, the, the whole thing starts at in Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, uh, and the 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 stronger man, and, and it even says, "You will be like God unto them." And and Moses or and Aaron, your prophet, goes into the land and takes out this whole company that God makes into His dwelling place. I have the verse written down here where it says uh, in Exodus thirty, I'm sorry, Exodus three twenty two. But every woman shall ask of her, um, yeah, every woman shall ask of her neighbor, namely of of her who dwells near her house, articles of silver, articles of gold, and clothing, and you shall put them. On your sons and on your daughters, and you shall and you shall plunder the Egyptians. And so they walk out carrying the very materials that a few chapters later they used to build the the tabernacle. Um. So, 
let's see here. You know, um, I just I wrote down this other verse here, where I, I don't know if you've ever noticed it, but this, but when when they go out, um, they walk out of Egypt with this is a few chapters later. We'll get to this in, in more detail later. But they walk out. It's it's a strange little verse. I think it's Exodus twelve thirty four maybe or thirty three. They walk out with these um, bowls on their shoulders. Um, carrying these bowls, these vessels, and and I think that that to me that ties right in with what we're talking about because that I believe that that's the Lord's view of salvation that that he he totally dumps out and crucifies the contents of a vessel and then and then takes it out of that country kindred and father's house, that rule, that place, that government, and fills that vessel with himself. In many places, in many, many scriptures, pay attention to the word vessel. It all, it, as far as I can think of right now, it always has to do with, with your soul uh, being filled up with, uh, with the Spirit of God or with the, the nature of Christ. There's a whole lot of, um, let me see, Pictures that, that that come to mind. For instance, uh, um, there's there's this one here in Exodus um, 12, where they come out carrying these vessels, which makes no natural sense, but makes perfect sense if you understand yourself to be that vessel, especially since those vessels were carrying unleavened bread, uh, and that's right there in that chapter too. But then the same th- the same thing is used in um, Isaiah 52, verse 11 uh, uh, or 12, when when there when when Isaiah is prophesying the exodus from the Babylonian captivity, he says, "Here, write down this verse here." Uh, he says, "Depart, depart, go out from there. Touch nothing unclean. Go out of the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who carry the vessels of the Lord." And uh, and that's, you know, if you remember, part of the Babylonian captivity, they didn't just take the people, they took the vessels from the uh, the temple of God, the, 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 the temple that Solomon had built. And they end up coming back to Israel carrying the vessels of the Lord, the vessels that God had created for his own temple. And, and that's just really, I think that's really kind of cool. But there's other places too that you have Elijah and Elisha, you know, filling up vessels, uh, with um with oil and the oil never runs out you have jesus in the um uh the uh the new testament um turning uh, changing the contents of these earthen vessels from from water to wine um you have oh in the old covenant again you have high priests using vessels with blood and water uh to cleanse the leper there's different ceremonies that were used to pictures of Christ's uh, death uh, being applied to the unclean to make it once again clean and enter into the camp. But all the ceremonies surrounding uh, an earthen vessel. Um, you have Paul talking about uh, us being vessels or, or becoming uh, no longer being vessels of dishonor, but becoming vessels of honor. What's the difference between a vessel and a, dis- a vessel of dishonor and a vessel of honor? I believe it has everything to do with the contents of the vessel, the thing that the vessel is containing, the thing that is filling that vessel. And so, I don't know. That's. That's what's going on here. We have a, 
uh, a stronger man entering into an enemy's habitation, the enemy's camp, joining himself in death. That's where that's where the joining takes place. There, there's a joining in life too, but it's only because they first joined with him in death. They first has gone into the death, into the Passover lamb. They join with him in death, and God takes a vessel out of that that enemy's territory. You could call it a bride. You can call it, you know, a kingdom. You can call it a lot of things. But ultimately, uh, it's a dwelling place. It's a dwelling place for himself. It's a vessel that contains the very life and spirit of God. Um, okay, let's see. Okay, so 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 uh, God's talking to Moses, and he's he's telling him these things, and he's saying, "Go to go to Pharaoh and do this." And, and Moses is arguing with him, saying, "You know, I I don't. I'm not a good." Uh, speaker and God's you know giving him the whole spiel about who made the tongue and this and that and then in the midst of that conversation God um, gives him these signs and I thought I'd just say a couple things about these signs in, in specific just because again just because one day when I was reading these signs I felt like they were more to me than just uh, tricks that prove that God was behind it, you know. Um, first of all, a couple comments just about signs in general. What are signs? I think, I think that you could say that signs are natural or supernatural things. Oftentimes in scripture they're supernatural. Um, that point to spiritual realities. And I think, in my mind, there's a difference between a miracle and a sign. I think all of Jesus' miracles were signs, but um, I don't think that most people think about... I, I think that anything that happens that's kind of outside the range of what we would call natural possibility, we would call a miracle. And yet everything that God did that was beyond... Um, well, everything that God did as a miracle, I believe, was also a sign. It was an intentional sign. That is to say, He gave those, He let those things happen. He caused those things to happen. He used people or events or, or mountains or fires or whatever to make these things happen, but with a very, not just to prove the reality of the supernatural, but to point very specifically at something spiritual. And there's a difference there. Um, spiritual, if it, if, if when God is using super, he can use supernatural things to point at spiritual realities. When I say spiritual realities, I'm talking about those realities that are true in His Spirit, true of His Spirit, true in Him, in Christ. Everything that God, every one of God's miracles. I don't think God ever did an arbitrary miracle or a miracle that just, its its only point was to uh, was to surprise human hearts or to uh, prove that He was real. I think all of His miracles, all of Jesus's miracles, were signs. And I think you miss the point if you don't see what they're pointing to. You're you're not only going to not understand them; you're going to have them. Uh, pointing to something less than what they're pointing to. For instance, I just heard someone say, not uh, I think it was last week, um, it was last week, that Jesus' multiplying of the uh, 
of the bread and the fish um, is pointing to how God is um, very invested in the feeding of the poor. And that, that proved his, uh, his love for the poor and the, and the, um, the desire that he has to fill hungry bellies. And while I don't want to say that, that that's something that's not, that God doesn't have any interest in, I'm not saying, although God, Jesus did say the poor you'll have with you always, I don't think that that is at all, I mean, I'm totally for feeding the poor, um, I, I've, I've done a lot of that over the years. I'm, I'm not, I'm not opposed to that at all. But I, however, I don't think at all that that was the point of the, of the multiplying of the, I think that was a sign. I think he was the bread that was broken and became the life of the many who were hungry and, and he offered them according to their hunger and, and, and collected the excess so that none was wasted. And, and then the very next day when they came looking for more natural food, he rebuked them for missing the whole point of the sign, saying, don't follow me for the food that perishes, but the food that endures unto eternal life. And they all, you know, then he started saying, I'm the bread and, and I'm the, I'm the drink and I'm the true. And, and he started pointing, he, they missed the sign, and so he just kind of gave them a little class on interpreting signs 101 and, and saying, look, these things, if you, if you missed what that was all about, it was about me. And he gives a whole, all of John chapter 6 is just explaining the miracle that he did in, in, in John chapter 5, or maybe it was the beginning of John chapter 6. Chapter six. And, 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 the, and the point was that it was a sign pointing to to one that is a greater kind of food that that responds to a different kind of hunger that has an excess of himself to give he happened to do that sign incidentally the feeding of the 5000 at, at passover which is where the lamb is slain and 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 uh, the body is broken for for them later you know a couple years later um the fulfillment of the Passover feast that was initiated there right here in the right here in this story we're about to get to in Exodus but all that's just to say God touches the natural realm in miraculous ways to draw your heart out of it and to dwell in him he he doesn't touch the natural realm and miracles so that you stand there in the natural realm waiting for the next miracle or that you build a ministry around the miracle or that you have as your goal seeing or working miracles the miracles themselves are signs that point the human heart to a far greater food, a far greater dwelling place, a far greater kind of healing, a far greater kind of deliverance. Everything, um, uh, everything that he does in that way, I believe, points beyond itself. And so, when you're talking, when you're looking at these specific, remember the the miracles that are the the signs that God gave Moses. He said, "Look, if they don't if they don't believe you, show them these these things." And and the first thing he says is, "Throw your, you know, staff down." And turns into a serpent, and then he runs from it. But then he reaches down, grabs it again, and and it becomes a staff again in his hand. To me, the, the, uh, that uh, that is a, a clear picture of. What he's doing in the Exodus, he's he's throwing down the, the he's putting the son of 
of his right hand, the, the staff of God, the power of God, throwing it down into Egypt, into this world of sin and death and Satan, and it's becoming a curse. And not only is it becoming a curse, but while it's there becoming a curse, it swallows up in itself all of the other snakes in the land, all of the other, whatever they could produce, whatever evil that, that Pharaoh's kingdom could produce, it swallows all of it up. That Remember the, the Moses' staff ate up the, the magician's serpents and, and then after, after becoming a curse, swallowing up the whole curse, uh, in itself, uh, and it, it returns to the hand of the father where it started becomes a staff again in his right hand. Um, I don't think he's just trying to prove he can turn a stick into a snake. I think he's giving a sign. With how much they understood that sign at that point, I have no idea. I don't know exactly what they were able to see by faith uh, under the Old Covenant. We certainly should see beyond um, just a, a magic trick here and see that Christ Based on the fact that later, just a, you know, a little bit later, uh, the staff has a serpent on it when they're all bitten by the snakes and they look upon it in faith and the ones who look upon the, sta- the snake on the staff are saved. And then Jesus in John chapter 3 quotes that very scripture calling himself the serpent on the staff because he becomes a curse for us. And, and and when he is lifted up, he draws all men to himself. John chapter 12, he, he swallows up all the curse in himself and then he puts it away and returns back to where he went before bringing us what was before bringing us with him uh it's this isn't really guesswork it's just what jesus says and and so that's one of the signs another sign is i think kind of similar this hand in the this arm the right arm of the lord again in the in the bosom of the father comes out becomes unclean uh becomes leprous remember he puts his hand in his cloak and then when he pulls it out it 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 turns white as snow leprous and then and then he puts it in again and it comes out and it's and it's and it's perfectly clean. It's back to back to the way it was before. I see a very similar picture there. I see a picture of what God's about to do in Egypt, bringing His Son into this, bringing His Lamb into this uh, unclean place, uh, letting it bear in itself all the uncleanliness, um, putting it away, and, uh, and then returning to the Father's bosom. Um, and if they don't believe those two signs, then he says, take some water out and dump it on the ground, and it will become, uh, it'll become blood. And I, I, I see that just as a, again, a picture of, you know, their rivers turning to blood. Their basically their their life turning to what they call life turning to death. It's a, it's a, it's the great judgment of, uh, uh, of all who will not receive that serpent and that hand that reaches out from God and tries to bring you back to the right hand in Christ. Um, right up in this same passage um, is the statement, and I, I, know I talk about this a lot, but I don't know if I, it's one of those things that I don't think you can, kind of, you can really overdo. He says this statement, Israel is my son even my firstborn. And I said, I said this recently in the, in the eternal purpose class. Uh, I'm going to say it again right now. I think that that sentence is uh, 
if we could pluck that sentence up and use it as a lens through which we read the entire Old Testament, I believe it will, I mean, in, in, a, in a genuine way in our heart, not just in an intellectual way in our brain, but in a, in a genuine way in our heart, I believe that that will begin, the Spirit of God will begin to use that to unlock the entire, uh, the entire Old Testament, at least from Exodus to Malachi. Uh, Israel is my son even my firstborn. That is, that's the key to understanding um, what God is doing with his corporate people all throughout the hundreds of pages of the Old Testament. That's it. What is God doing? He is creating a corporate body of his son, a corporate body of Christ. Israel, my son, even my firstborn, a body of glory. Um, Christ, of course, of course, is the life of that body. We are not the source of life. and never will be. Christ is the mind, the light, the nature, the righteousness, and yet there is a people joined to him as a corporate body a nation is born in a day he's sown in the in one form he's sown at, in weakness and yet he comes forth in power the power of a greater body a seed goes into the ground and dies and yet comes forth as a harvest that harvest is the increase of the one seed it's one plant that is the increase of the one seed. That is Israel, my son. Again, I want to be very clear. Christ is the life and the head. I don't believe, I've heard people say this. It makes me want to throw up a little bit in my mouth, but I don't believe that in any way, shape, or form we ever become Christ's or, I mean, little Christ's. Uh, we don't, ever share his divinity in terms of source or substance and yet we partake of the divine nature as recipients of what he is and gives us by grace we're joined to him those who are joined to the Lord become one spirit with him we're joined to him and come out of death we come out of the womb of death like a baby's head pops out and the body's attached to it not separate from it unless you have a serious problem on your hands the head comes out attached to the body and the whole thing, even though the head is the source of the perspective and the consciousness and the sight and the hearing and the eating, and even though the head is the source, the whole body comes out and you point to the whole thing and you say, that's a son. That's a son. In a lot of ways, the head can live without the body. The body could never live without the head. And so Israel comes out and this is what the church is supposed to understand itself to be the assembly you know whether you call it the old covenant assembly or the new covenant assembly it was both always in the, in the heart of god israel my son it's one corp it's it's israel my son in types and shadows and then it's israel my son in spirit and truth it's Israel, my son, in pictures and patterns and prophecies. And then it's Israel, my son, in, in fulfillment and essence and spirit. One body. I have this little diagram here. I always, I like to use this one here. Let me flick 
this to there. All right, so I just have here, there's a seed, Christ, the dying seed sown into the earth. When one died, all died. Many are joined, many are, are, are enter into the blood-covered door and go into that death, but, but he's the only one that, that died that death. We partake in his death, we're baptized into his death, but he actually, I mean, I don't mean, we don't experience his death, we certainly do, but, but he's the, he is the, 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 he accomplishes that death. He's the one that judges in himself, becomes the judgment of the man, of the thing inside the vessel that needs to be completely dumped out into the earth. And so he goes into the ground, and, and, and the seed, a seed has a kind of a glory. It has, it has a kind of, I mean, it, it puts something into view. It, it, it's, and it has all the fullness of life in it. But after it goes into the ground and sheds this Adamic husk, that it took on, it took on all this sin and death. Um, it it sheds that husk, leaves that husk in the ground, and it's raised. Christ raised as the head of a new corporate body, a different body, a body with greater glory. He comes forth in a greater form. That form is called. Well, you can call it the church. You can call it Israel, my son, even my firstborn from among the dead. My firstborn, the one that opened the womb of death, the one that 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 was planted in death and came out in life, the one that made the earth tremble in labor pains, and then the tomb opened and out of the grave came this one who was saying... I ascend to my father and your father. Go tell my brethren. You know, Paul or Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? This one who immediately started to relate to his disciples as members of his own body with one father and one spirit and one baptism into death and one spirit and I mean, and one faith and one everything. Israel, my son. And this is the story that we saw in Jacob. Jacob was sent out from his father. He goes into this land of Laban and, and he comes out, as I mentioned before, he comes, he goes out, he says, with only my staff in my hand. Again, the staff painting the same picture there. He comes back as two whole companies returning to his father. So, the church, Israel, my son, is in the old covenant it is a picture in every detail of the resurrected body of Jesus Christ i don't mean i don't mean the one see jesus came out of the grave and some of you've heard me talk about this before and I, but I, I know there's always people that haven't jesus obviously came out of the grave in in a, in a bodily form and 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 appeared to show himself alive to his disciples and yet he wouldn't relate to them any longer in that bodily form he would just appear long enough for them to recognize that he was alive from the dead but he did not want to relate to them as a man as two people separate in the flesh any longer he wanted to relate to them as one 
uh, as a body, as the head of a spiritual body. And for that reason, as soon as they recognized him, it must have been kind of frustrating at first, but as soon as they recognized him in their soul with a new kind of light, then he would disappear from their eyes. He kept doing that. In fact, he rebuked Mary for clinging to him the same way that she used to before he had ascended to his father. And, 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 and as soon as they recognized him after breaking the bread and saw who he really was, he, he vanished. And, and he did the same thing with John and Peter. And he pops up in Doubting Thomas's room and, and then he says, you only believe because you see, but blessed are those from now on who faith, who believe, that word, that Greek word is faith, without seeing. Because there's a new kind of knowing, a new kind of relationship. I don't want you to know me as a Nazarene who walked around in sandals anymore. I want you to know me as the head of a corporate body, as the life of Israel, my son. And so the one, one seed was planted into the earth by itself, a lone seed. And unless it was planted, it remains alone. And yet if it dies in the earth and drops that husk, then it comes forth with a people joined to him. And, and the church is the greater body, is the resurrected body. We all go into that death. We all come forth as one resurrected body. So again, when I say that, I always feel like I want to clarify that I'm not saying that we are Christ in substance or source. But I am saying, and I don't want to take, I don't want to minimize this statement because it's true. I am saying that the church is the resurrected body of Christ. Let's see here. How much time do I have? Not much at all. I have all these verses from 1 Corinthians where, where, where Paul basically says, that one one form of the life, one body of the life went into the ground, was sowed in dishonor, and and another body came forth. It was the same life that came forth in resurrection, but it had a different body. And he says, but someone will say, how are the dead raised and with what kind of body do they come? You fool. That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or something else. You don't, you don't sow the resurrected form. You sow some kind of bare grain and, and, and a new form, a totally different form comes forth. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, a natural body, the corporate body of Adam sown into the earth in, in the death of Jesus Christ. It is raised a spiritual body, the church, Israel, my son. There is a natural body. There is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Who does he give life to? He gives life to his own body. He gives life to Israel, my son. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural. Then the spiritual. And and let me, I'll just conclude with with this. The reason I, I always feel like I have to say that again and again, is because when I began to see that God was dealing with a corporate body of his son, 
and 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 that he took into the wilderness a a corporate body of Christ that had no idea who they were where they where they came out from or where they were going but nevertheless a corporate body of Christ then every single one of the laws and the ceremonies and the feasts and the offerings and the sacrifices and the ordinances of the priesthood and all the things that he began to mandate from Israel made so much sense to me because he was only ever requiring that Israel, my son, bear the image and fragrance and nature of his son. He was only asking them to be what they were. He was only asking them to walk in the light as he was in the light and experience true fellowship with him in that light. He was only ever, he had already accomplished something. He had given birth to Israel, my son, and he was wanting that son to grow up into the full knowledge of the father, the full knowledge of the relationship, to live in the reality of what they already were, to not in their life, nature, worship, or any way contradict what they were. And so he required them in lots of types and shadows to, um, he required them simply to align themselves with the revealing of Jesus Christ. What do I mean by that? I mean, when he revealed the fragrance of Christ in this offering, he required them to obey that offering and not invent their own kind. When he revealed that Christ's relation, Christ's intercession was of this nature and described it and put it in the high priest, he required that the high priest acted according to this picture of his son. When he described to them how the life of Christ interacts within his body in, in terms of these relationships within Israel. He required them to act according to that, but not just because he was giving them a list of rules and do's and don'ts, but because they were Israel, my son, and his requirements of them were always that they would um, they would come to know even as they were known that they would apprehend that for which they were apprehended of God, that they would live as the son that he had made them to be through the, the death of the lamb. And so, and, and every bit of their rebellion was just like our rebellion. Uh, it, it, the choosing of our own blindness and ignorance, self-will, refusing to bear in ourselves and allow Christ, God to form in ourselves the life that he's given us in his son. So that's the nature of their obedience. Their obedience was to the revelation of Christ. And that's the nature of their disobedience. Their disobedience was contrariness, rebellion against the revealing of Christ in their midst in a, in a multitude of pictures and shadows and types. So I'll stop with that and see if you guys have questions or comments or